Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to LSE for this hybrid event. Uh, I'm Dennis Sainfort. I'm a professor in the uh, Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at LSE. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome everybody here in the uh, Shakespeare Lecture Theatre uh, and to all those uh, who are joining us online. Uh, so I've um, been doing climate research for the last 25 years or so, but mainly on the sort of maths and physics side. Um, but of course, human-induced climate change is a societal issue, and uh, today we're looking at climate change, or more specifically, <laughs> net zero uh, in the media. Uh, how can journalists help citizens um, understand what net zero entails, what, what it means uh, for them and how it fits in with their values uh, and their livelihoods. And we're very fortunate to have um, four experts on climate change in the media with us today. Um, we have, uh, I'm not sure what order I should uh, go through them, but uh, we have uh, Roger Howbin, uh, who is the uh, NG and Environment Analyst at the BBC for uh, many, year, many years and uh, founding presenter of Radio Falls Costing the Earth. We have uh, Fiona Harvey, an award-winning environmental journalist uh, at The Guardian and previously The Financial Times. Um, we have James Painter, who, um, who's a research associate at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University. And we have uh, Adam Vaughan, who is the environmental, uh, <coughs> environment editor at The Times, previously um, chief reporter of The uh, New Scientist. So the layout for this evening is that uh, each of them will give a short presentation of a, of a few minutes, after which we'll have around 35 minutes uh, of discussion and then uh, half an hour or so of questions uh, from the audience. And all of this will be moderated by uh, my colleague, uh, Marion Duma. Marion is the driving force behind this event. She's an assistant uh, professorial research fellow at the Grantham Research Institute here, uh, and her research addresses all sorts of things, including green innovation and just transition, uh, including the attitudes of, of citizens uh, and how they are affected um, by policy choices and how we communicate those things. So, all very relevant to what we're talking about. For those of you who are on Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is uh, LSE Net Zero News, uh, and the event is being recorded and will hopefully be uh, made available as a podcast, uh, assuming we don't have uh, any difficulties, um, in technical difficulties there. Um, so when, when we get to the uh, point of having taken questions from, from you all, um, the session will be still moderated by Marion. For our online audiences, uh, you can submit questions uh, by the Q&A uh, feature, which I'm told is at the top left of your screen. Um, Please let us know your name and affiliation and your geographical location. Uh, and uh, we're always particularly happy to hear from um, students and alumni of LSE, so do let us know if, if that's the case. For those of you in the uh, theatre here today, when we open it up for questions, please could you raise your hand, but wait for uh, the microphone to be brought to you before you asking the questions. And again, if you could give your name and affiliation uh, before posing your question. Um, so I think that's it for introductions, uh, and I'm delighted to hand over to Marion. Great. Um, yes, thank you very much, Dave. 
so just before I hand, uh, I yield the floor to our distinguished uh, speakers, I just wanted to give a few words uh, to explain my motivation for organizing this event. Um, so I think for a long time there was this narrative that we have all the solutions we need to solve climate change and it was mostly a question of political will. Um, and so the, all the emphasis was on sort of convincing uh, people that it's a real threat um, and that you know, we, we need to take action sooner than later. Um, and you know, at this point, so glossing over sort of the, 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 the difficulties uh, around actually decarbonizing, we just sort of focus on, yeah, to what extent is climate change a threat, uh, to what extent it concerns each and one of us, and so, I, but I think at this point, you know, there is no shortage of reporting on, um, you know, breaking of, of temperature records, of ice melt, of extreme events. And I, th I think at this point, in countries where ideology hasn't polarized the public to an extreme level, there is a sort of widespread consensus that this is an important problem and that it's important to address it. And uh, having established this sort of widespread common knowledge of the problem, I think is an in incredible achievement actually uh, on such a complex issue uh, that uh, media has greatly contributed to. But today in the UK, you know, we've started the messy work, and as many also countries in Europe and various places in the world, the messy work of decarbonizing. Um, and it turns out we don't have all the solutions and it is not an easy undertaking. Um, and at the same time, uh, it turns out that there is a lot of pessimism. And so we, although we've been making progress, actually, in, uh, in the UK, there's, you know, emissions are coming down. You know, there's a, whole, a huge amount of pessimism. Surveys reveal that people do not think we can, we, we can decarbonize. Um, there are these cross-country surveys that really show uh, people are very cynical about this, or at least disillusioned. Um, also, there's a great deal of evidence now about the fact that people don't understand uh, how the policies um, that can help us make progress work. Uh, we don't really understand how carbon uh, pricing uh, works and whether it's going to be effective or not. Um, and then there are lots of, you know, uh, non-obvious choices that need to be made at different scales, local scales, national scales, interna you know, internationally. Um, and uh, do we, you know, are, are people equipped to sort of engage with those, uh, with those uh, topics? Uh, in fact, uh, the day, you know, the, 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 at this stage, there is also recent reports that now misinformation is spreading on the costs of low carbon uh, alternatives. Um, and so the question is, how do we support and build a constructive debate around how to decarbonize that doesn't just generate a lot of fear and backlash around what are uh, undoubtedly uh, disruptions in the short term in some of the ways we do certain things and in some of the uh, sectors that employ people and so on and so forth. So today, that's why I invited some of the foremost communicators of climate change uh, in this country to share their views um, uh, regarding how to effectively communicate about climate change solutions uh, and about the trends and pressures that affect, you know, how uh, they end up reporting on this uh, and the challenges uh, that they, may, they, they feel like they face in helping to build a constructive debate uh, uh, around our uh, pathway to a low-carbon economy. So it is my pleasure to then uh, kick off by inviting James to share uh, his introductory remarks. 
Okay, thank you very much indeed. Just to build on what Marion is saying, I, I do a lot of research um, around uh, how the media report climate change around the world. It's a real growth area now. So I thought what would be helpful, just by way of context, I'm not a practicing journalist anymore, just to point out three key points that the research, the research shows about how the media cover climate solutions and what you were suggesting, uh, misinformation or disinformation. So here are the three points. They're, they're necessarily simplified, but uh, I thought it would be helpful. The first is, which I think many of you would have read or be aware of, is that there's uh, an increasing shift in the media, both in social media and in mainstream media, away from denying traditional climate science. That's to say, it's not happening, it's not us, or the impacts aren't going to be as greatly as, as, as we feared, towards questioning climate uh, solutions, and particularly questioning uh, the cost uh, aspects. There's lots of recent, recent research suggesting uh, that this is uh, the case and that more and more voices are being given, particularly in right-leaning media around the world but also in the UK, to those who challenge the solutions on various grounds. Uh, just an example, we published a Nature piece looking at how television around the world reported the IPCC Working Group 1 report of 2021, and it was quite clear there that whereas in the past there had been lots of traditional climate denialists given a space, this time <coughs> round they were given very little space except on extreme right-leaning uh, uh, media outlets, but who were given a space were people who questioned the policy. There's, I think, what Marion may have been suggesting, there was a really interesting study out last week as well, put out by the Centre for Countering, Countering Digital Hate. They looked at uh, 12,000 videos on YouTube uh, from 2016 to the present, and there was a, a, a really marked shift on the amount of how it had changed to what they call new denial. I wouldn't say it's new denial, it's just emphasis on denying uh, the solutions. 35% to 70% just in six years. Second key point, we're doing quite a lot of research on the UK media about how they report um, net zero. Um, and um, the, the, the story there is that whereas until about 2018, even right-leaning media were generally in support of climate action, since 2018, there's been quite a notable shift, particularly in editorials and opinion pieces, towards denying or at least questioning aspects of um, the policies. Um, go and Google a really good carbon, uh, carbon uh, uh, brief uh, that they looked at all the editorials over the last 10 years. We've just started a study uh, for the Grantham Institute here, looking at the coverage of net zero in the six-month period between the Uxbridge by-election and uh, Sunak's reversal watering down policy. And the initial finding would be that some of the right-leaning newspapers are using misinformation around particularly the cost, but that we've already identified ten arguments that you could seriously challenge uh, as, as to whether they were misleading or inaccurate. Third key point is, and a lot of people ask me this, and it's a, a complex debate, and it speaks to all the communication literature uh, about what are the advantage of portraying in the media solutions rather than constantly negative aspects. There has been quite a shift in the last five years, I would say, with more volume of coverage of different types 
of climate solutions. Many people would say it hasn't gone fast enough, and it's not deep enough, and it's not imaginative enough, but whereas 10 years ago most of the reporting was gloom and doom and negative impacts, there is much more volume of reporting of um, climate uh, solutions. And there is some research, but it's really complicated, as to whether this emphasis on solutions coverage in the media enhances public engagement. And it depends on what do you mean by engagement, what types of solution, a great range of, uh, of solutions, and what type of audience. And we can go into that if you like in the, in, in, in the discussion. There is also, if you look at the a report by the Reuters Institute they put out last November, there's a, a very strong appetite around the world for climate solutions and particularly local solutions for, for around where you live. Something like 78% uh, of the people who surveyed said we want more climate uh, solutions. And finally, what do the UK public think? Marion, you may have more information than I do, but my, and I'm not a... Uh, someone who studies opinion polls, but my understanding is that there's still within the UK population an overwhelming support for net zero. It's some, the last climate barometer stats I looked at, which were, were from November, was that it was 70% uh, support that had hardly, despite all the evidence uh, or content questioning climate solutions, it remained pretty stable. It was 80% amongst Labour Party supporters and 60% amongst Tories. But the key point is, it's hardly changed. But if you delve down, and again, I'm sure we can discuss this, uh, some of the work by CAST at Cardiff University shows that it can be very fragile, that support for um, net zero, when the costs and any threats to your particular lifestyle are mentioned. Uh, it quite, the support for net zero drops quite markedly. However, if you mention the co-benefits, such as better health, better air pollution, uh, better job creation, then support increases. So those are the three key points I would make in terms of context, which I think is important to uh, have to be able to uh, raise the level of the debate. That's all. Great. That's, uh, we can now go over to Fiona. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thanks for, for, for that, James. That was fascinating, actually. And it does highlight some of the problems that we face as uh, environment journalists. Um, 20 years ago, when I started writing about the environment, the problem was trying to get news editors interested in environment stories. Um, when we were talking about the climate, we were talking about uh, you know, predictions that were sort of decades away. Uh, we were trying to impress upon people, you know, the, the, the magnitude of a problem that was really not apparent uh, at that time. Um, and it's very difficult to get news editors interested in a story that seems to be quite a kind of slow burn story. You know, we're always talking about, you know, decades into the future. Of course, now we're talking about things that are happening right now uh, in our lives, outside the window, things that we can all see and experience. Um, this is a tragedy for the planet, uh, and it's great for climate <coughs> journalists, um, because now it means that we can be taken seriously, and the news editors uh, are interested in our stories, and we get on the front page. Um, so, you know, this, at last. 
you know. What you mean, Fiona, is you get on the front page. <laughs> we don't get on the front page. <laughs> um, so it's um, yeah, well, it's 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 an ill wind, Roger. Um, so you know that that's the kind of the the, the paradox of of climate journalism there. Um, that you know now that disaster is uh, is befalling us, people are finally interested. Um, but as James has has laid out, um, the the problem is uh, that the narrative has also been shifting and the way that climate deniers or dismissers or you know anti-climate people whatever you want to call them um, the way that they operate has also changed I mean you know a few years ago Twitter was actually quite a, a useful good place for, uh, for, for people to talk about the climate of course now under uh, Elon Musk uh, X is, is you know, it's a terrible place to try and go and talk about the climate because it's just got these <coughs> legions of bots uh, and deniers who kind of leap on everything, um, and everything becomes, you know, quickly bogged down in in that kind of nihilistic discourse. Um, more importantly, though, the other problem that, that that we have, and it's happening in this country, but it's also happening uh, across Europe and in other countries, is uh, the culture war. Uh, that's that's been taking place. Now we're familiar with this from uh, the United States, um, but it's always we've always been successful in the past in this country in keeping uh, the climate crisis from being uh, a left-right issue. Um, you know, we go right back to Margaret Thatcher, who of course was a chemist and understood uh, the climate. Uh, and she actually championed the climate uh, at the United Nations in a very famous speech. So, you know, from then, from those very first days when, when climate change was being treated as a, as a, a, a public uh, issue like that, um, you know, we had uh, this conservative icon taking a stand on it. That was incredibly helpful. And that keeping uh, climate change from being a left-right issue was, was crucial to the progress that we made. The fact that uh, the current government wants to break that consensus and sees some kind of short-term political gain in breaking that consensus is another absolute tragedy, uh, in my view, and it really does poison the discourse. The right-wing press uh, in this country, um, the right-wing media, um, has always taken a, you know, a it's to some extent a climate skeptic point of view, uh, or in other cases, just a, uh, a, a difficult view on the climate. You know, either not running stories, not giving them prominence, um, or taking a kind of skeptical attitude. Um, now, this has got much worse. They're not trying to say now that, you know, this is not happening, that would be futile. Um, but as James has laid out, this kind of the denialism has moved to trying to stop progress on the solutions, on trying to kind of ignite this culture war around it. So I think that you know, just to, to conclude the, uh, on that, um, this is you know the difficulty that we need to face now. We need to stop this from being a culture war, and I think that mm -hmm. the way to do that is to keep focusing on the facts, mm -hmm. to focus on the science, uh, which is you know, so strong, it's completely uh, undeniable. There's no, no, no room 
for, for any real uncertainties in, in the facts of climate science and to focus on the, the, the hard news uh, in, in terms of the, the science, the research, the economics. You know, we can show, we had the Stern Review in 2006, we can show that, isn't it wonderful, uh, it makes business sense to save the planet that we all live on. Phew. Um, but we can show that, we can lay that out in terms that businesses can understand. We can show that these policies uh, are successful uh, as well as necessary. So what we need to do is instead of being drawn into this kind of cultural war rhetoric, we need as journalists to keep that focus, that hard focus on the facts. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. I think we just go in, in, in the order that we're seated. So Roger. Uh, yeah, so I'm not talking on behalf of the BBC, but I was there for 37 years, I think, and so it's hard to get that out of my head. And also, to an extent, the narrative of climate change within the BBC is uh, kind of representative of, of the broader narrative, too. So when I first reported on climate change was, I think, maybe 33 years ago or something like that, 34 years ago, uh, and um, I, I faced really quite severe scepticism within the office from other correspondents who thought I'd kind of taken leave of my senses and actually uh, approached the editor and said, OK, we don't think you should let Harabin do all this sort of stuff. This is all rubbish and you, you mustn't let him do it. Um, but uh, I got support from my editors, uh, tried to stick religiously to the, uh, to the facts as, as we knew them. Um, and then uh, they decided I'd overworked a bit, so they sent me off on a sabbatical. And um, it was great, really. And I thought one interesting topic would be what would happen if you kind of imagined you were a journalist or a historian in a hundred years' time and you looked back on what was important in the world now, in our, in our time, what would you think would be the really important stories? At that time, the news was dominated by NHS in crisis. I mean, the NHS is always in crisis. But my point was that um, the really big issues, climate change, ocean acidification, didn't know much about it then, uh, population trends, uh, migration, ageing populations, all these things didn't appear in the news. They didn't appear in the news because they moved so slowly. The stories moved so slowly that we didn't notice them. We only move, notice things that move, that move fast. So anyway, I wrote a paper, just a couple of sheets of A4, uh, and somehow got a message to the head of news that I'd got this piece of research on, or imagination, really, and wondered if he might be interested in hearing it. And to my astonishment, he gave me a fantastic audience. This was Tony Hall, Professor Sir Tony Hall, or whatever he is now. Uh, and, um, and he said, I want you to take away my senior management layer I want to take them away for a couple of days to Cambridge and, uh, and you know, put them together with some experts and let's try and see if we can be creative about this. I mean, we're talking about years and years ago now, a very long time ago. And uh, from that point on, the BBC has taken climate change very seriously uh, with a few sceptics inside to sort of prod away at things. That's kind of inevitable in a big organisation and maybe not unhealthy, um, but we, we moved ahead with it on in a non-partisan fashion. But because the BBC is so influential and so central to the culture of British politics, uh, we were really under scrutiny. 
and uh, my work came in for criticism from people on the right, I mean, particularly The Telegraph, particularly Charles Moore, former editor of The Telegraph, uh, and he, uh, he wrote, well, he wrote one column about um, the BBC and Roger Harabin, and then the next week he wrote another column about the BBC and Roger Harabin, uh, and I thought, I've got to do something about this, but of course, BBC, you're not allowed to do anything. You just sit there and smile as people punch you in the face. Uh, and so I came up with a wheeze, and the following week there was going to be a report on consumption, uh, sustainable consumption, and I'd persuaded the editor to put me on to talk about it. And I'd come up with the idea, what I was going to say is, well, let's take Justin Webb as the presenter. Well, Justin, um, you know, what this report says is kind of, these are my words, but not the report's word, it, what this says is, we can't all be going on keeping on like greedy Mr. Moore. Sometimes we have to be frugal Mrs. Less. Anyway, I was very pleased with myself <laughs> for, for a long period of time after that. And then I thought, actually, that's a bit childish. Why don't, why don't, why don't I do something different? So I phoned up the head of climate science at the Royal Society and said, would you invite myself and Charles Moore to lunch? So he might learn something. Anyway, I invited him to lunch. It was hilarious. I won't go into why he was so hilarious. But he kind of, I don't know if you know what he looks like. He looks like he stepped out of a sort of 1950s or not 40s or something country house shooting weekend. Anyway, um, he turned up and uh, Brian, who is, doesn't get angry very often, became so exasperated when he said, oh, well, 40 degrees, 50 degrees, I mean, what's that matter? or something like that, and Brian virtually leapt across the table at him and said, do you not understand that 40 degrees, 50 degrees, nobody works outside, all the crops die, the trees die, uh, no, nobody can work on any roads, no buildings are built, uh, and he kind of sat back in his chair more, and he said, oh, right, I can see I, I need to learn a bit more about this climate change thing. And he went away the following week and wrote another column slagging me off. <laughs> and, and I, I mean, I, I mention this because I think it's, it's difficult for people to understand. Climate sceptics are not just, well, I don't know what they are, people think they are, but they come in many different sort of shapes and sizes. And they may have the same message, but they have different motivations. So there are some who are clearly paid, in the pay, either directly or indirectly, of oil firms, coal firms, set up think tanks, so-called think tanks, now known by George Monbiot as junk tanks, and, and just pour out disinformation. And we're seeing loads of that, particularly on the web uh, at the moment. But there are some others who are very, just very strong libertarians and believe that there is always another point of view. And once society is given a sole point of view, then you're into a Soviet system in which there is only one truth. And they believe there is always more than one truth. So they had a real gripe with the BBC because I managed to uh, persuade editors that we shouldn't keep on with false impartiality putting on air people who were eminent scientists alongside people who knew nothing about it whatsoever but had strong feelings. Um, so you know, you've, got to, you've got to kind of take that, take that into, into uh, your mind when you're thinking about who these, who these people are. Or not, sometimes they're both, but in my experience they're generally people being who kind of fanatically, fanatically libertarian. Um, I think I'd better stop now because I'm over my three minutes, but I've got lots more to say, no, as you can good. imagine. It's me. Go ahead, we have plenty of time. Okay, uh, so, you know, net, so, <laughs> so just looking forward to the question of net zero, I mean, I think we're in real problems with that. 
Um, a story in The Guardian showed this week showed that uh, people don't even know the simplest of things in terms of terminology. Um, net zero, I've always resisted. I've always called it near zero, which, you know, is not quite it, but it's sort of it. Because um, people don't, don't know what net means, you know. People don't know what green means, what green policy means. There's all sorts of things, basic things that we write that pub the public just doesn't understand. Mm -hmm. And that's a real problem for our reporting. And then there's another kind of a bigger challenge, really, where, you know, we talk about sticking to the facts, and I agree with sticking to the facts, but I think the climate debate has maybe suffered from paying too much, um, giving too much credibility to um, certain representations of climate change. So, for instance, IPCC, which we all know, um, it, when, it, when it forecasts future, future events, Everything we're seeing is right at the top end of the range. I put this to Jim Ski, the head of the IPCC. I said, look, Jim, everything's at the top end of the range. You know, you've really undercooked all this. Science and climate science has undercooked all this. Everything at the top end of the range. He said, no, you're wrong. The ocean temperatures are way off the scale, way, way more than we expected. And, and yet, when we're reporting it, because we need a touchstone of credibility, we kind of refer to the IPCC as a, the Bible. Maybe we should have as much belief in it as we have in the Bible. Um, in terms of stopping the culture war, I mean, I completely agree, but I, do, I don't know if it's stoppable. You know, there is such a lot of money going into it, such a lot of effort going into it, that Rish, and Rishi Sunak has scandalously, has scandalously weaponized it. I spoke to a minister in COP. Who said, "Oh well, all the, you know, Sunak's you know reining back on environment policy, climate policy was good politics." So I said, "Well, how how do you get that?" He said, "Well, the policies hardly changed, which was true. The policies have hardly changed, but but it got the express off our backs." Anyway, I'll stop there. Great, Adam. Hi. Uh, thanks for listening. I don't think I've ever been called distinguished before, so this is a <laughs> big night for me. Um, I just my comments are mostly. Um, just a few random thoughts on the whole sort of how do you do constructive journalism around the net zero stuff. Um, I work for The Guardian, New Scientist and The Times, so I've gone from sort of centre-left, if that's right, uh, to apolitical to centre-right. Um, I guess what's interesting is when I think of my readers and editors, it, all those titles is they've been, they all like good news stories, so you know we call it different things, constructive journalism, solutions journalism, but I think what's interesting is just all across all those different audiences, it tends to get good traffic and good engagement. So to give some examples, when I worked at The Guardian, an easy win to get hundreds of thousands of page views was to do a story about a renewable energy record, you know, pick Denmark exporting wind power for a few days, it would go off the charts. So there was a huge appetite for that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, um, I know um, Roger's a big fan of Hannah Ritchie, who you should look up if you don't know her already. She does our world in day. She's got a new book out about sort of reasons to be cheerful. And um, her sort of message that she's been giving in some of the interviews around her book is that we just need to talk about clean energy more because that's something that plays really well with voters of all different stripes. Um, anyway, I've gone off on a tangent. Um, new, new scientist, one of the things I did there was an email newsletter called Fix the Planet, which was basically a very boosterish, yay, what's the thing to be happy about this week? And I would do a sort of deep dive on one subject, like, you know, sprinkling rock dust on fields to speed up the rate of carbon absorption or doing space-based solar power and doing a 
jump in on one technology, one company, one individual, one development. Um, and I think the you know that went from like no subscribers to like thirty thousand subscribers in the space of like about eighteen months of no marketing. So like it was a genuine. I mean, maybe my brand's just really damn good, right? But like, I think it was just a there was a genuine appetite out there for that stuff, and I think um, so. That's one example from there. Um, at the times, I think there's a what's been interesting to me is there's a real appetite for doing reasons to be cheerful type stuff. Um, so you know, we did a spread um, when COP27 in Egypt, um, just at the start of that, which started with the kind of reminder of okay, here's a bunch of reasons to be cheerful, but we're well off track on all our carbon emission stuff and we are basically a bit stuffed, which is this kind of constant tension we're trying to have, right, of communicating that, yes, the big picture is bad, all the metrics are bad. Um, you know, if you look at something like Hans Rosling's book about factfulness, you know, if you look at most of the metrics on a lot of things and development and so on, education, everything's getting better. All the environment ones are getting worse, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. I won't repeat it all for you because you're here and you're probably interested in this. Um, but yeah, at the same time, you can hold it in your head that there's good case studies, good things going on. Um, and to talk about the sort of challenges we face, I think this is not like tiny violin stuff, but just to be real basics is that we're at the behest of the news agenda. And as sort of, you know, Fiona's pointed out, we can only report on things that have sort of happened in the past by and large. Alan Rusbridge, the former editor of The Guardian, had a really nice phrase about it being, you know, the rear, 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 rear mirror in a car. You know, you kind of can only talk, look, it's very hard getting editors interested in things in the future. Um, so, you know, that means when, like, Richard Sunak stands up in September and spouts a load of misinformation, tells you, you get, you get seven bins and I've scrapped them, and all this nonsense. Um, it's, you know, we are, we have to cover that, and we have to do that straight. We have to stick to the facts of what he has said. We can go to certain, we can, we've got choice in who we go to for responses on that, and we've got choice in the sort of context we put in. But, you know, there are, I think, one of the things on the constructive side is there's a, I think a big thing is story selection. So on that example, I did an interview. I, he basically spent ages slagging off heat pumps, which is like really weird. It's like, we talk about culture wars, like how has something that's like a reverse fridge become a culture war item? I don't know. But you know that, and I saw the story I did the next week was to phone up Greg Jackson, I actually went to his office, Greg Jackson at Octopus Energy, which is the second biggest energy supplier. So how did that, you know, what happened after he gave that speech? And apparently, the week after, the five times as many people phoned up about heat pumps. So yeah, it's like, so there's kind of a way to turn, you know, rubbish into gold. Um, I think even on the, even on, even when we are sort of at the behest of what people say. I think an interesting thing about constructive, sort of general observation about constructive stories, is that we call them pegs in, you know, the jargon of like, why now for a story? The pegs are not always that good for those stories. Like it's some like, you know, like a like the, that firm called EAV, the one who makes the sort of big bikes that carry things like cargo and stuff. They or EVA, I forget which it is. They've got you know like some investment coming up, and there's the, you get these kind of like the, it'll be like well, there's some money coming into it, or we've got a new building for our <laughs> sort of gee whiz electric plane. Or it, the pegs are not that exciting, apart from maybe from a business desk point of view, perhaps they play well, but like for home news and foreign news, not so well, whereas like some of the, the sort of more gloomy stuff like rows and, you know, political, it, it, it sort of just play, writes better copy. So there's that, um, I'll just stop seeing because I'm going over now, I think myself. Um, I, I mean, I do think the technologies are largely there. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like Bill Gates and a massive technophile, I do think they are largely there. I do think it is largely political will and social will to bear the cost of it. Um, I think one thing that's going to obviously come up a lot in the last year is 
cost, which is bringing people with you. So we saw that in the wake of the Uxbridge um, by-election and all the hoo-ha about ULES, and there was a lot of rot written about that. But I mean, I think there are, it did bring up real questions about how do you protect the most vulnerable when you do these things. Um, you know, for example, the government has been promising for, what, three years now to move levies for renewables and the rest of it off electricity onto gas, which makes loads of sense because gas is polluting and renewables is, electricity is, you know, more than, is about 60% low carbon now. So it makes perfect sense, but it obviously also writes a tabloid headline of government putting up gas bills. So there's clever ways, I've been talking to think tanks, there's clever ways of getting around that, of, of protecting people, but it, it, that is, the, I think, the big one that's going to be come up again and again in the coming years of how you bring people with you. Um, I don't have all the answers to that. I think it comes back to also we need good advocates for this stuff in the public domain. You know, on the ULED stuff, I think partly the reason it stuck was Keir Starmer didn't stand up for Sadiq Khan. So what can we say? We can't start kind of, we're not commentators, we're reporters. So we have to follow what people are saying. Yes, we can go, there's a certain amount of story selection and commentator selection that we can do, but we don't, believe it or not, we don't set the agenda. Um, so that's a real challenge, I think, and just something to think about. Um, I mean, I'd echo, I'm going to stop now, I'd echo the points about the cultural stuff, obviously. I mean, I've done interviews with, like, you know, even, like, very sober people, like, former, I spoke last year to a former shell economist who's joined the Climate Change Committee, and he was saying, this is, you know, this is one of the big dangers. We really don't want to go down this US star road of polarising it. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I think you all know that. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Great, so I'll, uh, I'll um, use the privilege of being here on the stage to ask a few questions uh, in the hope of also generating a kind of open discussion between, um, uh, between you. Uh, and uh, in, uh, in 15 minutes, we'll, we'll move to the audience. Um, so I think I want to start with a pretty simple um, question, which is uh, you can you know, probably answer pretty briefly, but are you happy at this stage with the balance between reporting on climate change, you know, the, uh, the facts about climate change, its progress, its impacts, versus, uh, you know, reporting on solutions and what works, basically. Um, and we can just do a quick, quick uh, round of answers on that. Uh, Fiona, go ahead. I think there is a lot of reporting on uh, solutions uh, now, and I think that that's a really good thing. And as, as Adam said, I think maybe it's really, it, you know, people, people want these sort of can-do stories. I mean, what, people, what turns people off is if you just constantly present a problem, if you just say exactly. doom, gloom, you know, oh God, isn't it awful out there? Um, you know, that really, you know, people... people respond to it uh, initially, of course, you know, people are worried and, and, and alarmed. Um, but if it's just doom and gloom, um, people can only take so much of it. Um, so it, it's really important, I think, to have these uh, solutions not in every story, in a sense. 
you know, not to have a kind of sort of set, separate category of, oh, you know, every so often we'll have a sort of good news story about how, you know, we found a new penguin colony somewhere or, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, more people are, are riding e-bikes or whatever it is. Um, but to actually have writing about solutions in all of the, the kind of the climate stories, really, in a sense, you know, to, to, to have it embedded uh, across what we write uh, on, on the climate and environment, rather than just, you know, have snippets of it every now and again when we think of something good to write. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd like to agree with you, um, but, I mean, you will know as well as me that uh, you know we're given we're given a number of words to write, and and if you, you said earlier on want to stick to the facts of science or what have you, if you're doing a proper scientific report, you probably used your quota of words by the time you get to, you know, here's a good idea, whatever the good idea is. I, I've been wrestling with this for years as to how positive to be, and I took issue with uh, a journalist who I won't mention at COP, who'd done a piece saying you know three ways to save the planet. And I read through the whole piece, and it didn't mention that actually, you know, how far we are, how far we're off targets, or whether that net zero actually was appropriate, and whether we need absolute zero, and whether 2050 was the right time zone, or should we be aiming for 2040? I mean, do we really want to go to three degrees to see what that feels like? Of course not. It's bloody insane. So um, anyway, I couldn't persuade him to put in half a line, and you know, I. I I think we could argue amongst ourselves in journalists as to whether or not there ought to be something of the other, the other side, a bit optimism. I mean, it would be nice to be optimistic. And there's fantastic technologies out there. I've just come back from Scandinavia. There's some mind-blowing stuff going on. It's really, really interesting. But it's too bloody late. It's 30 years too late. Now, do I say that every time I write a report? I don't know. Now, James. Yeah, just briefly. Sorry, I'm going to pour everyone. Always wearing the research hat, but there, there is research shown, which I think is absolutely fascinating, at least until recently on Fiona's point, that um, it was very rare that journalists combined a sort of expose or a description of, you know, the terrible impacts that we were uh, going to face with what the solutions are. Yeah. And it's partly to do with space, it's partly to do with, um, you know, the, the, the sort of narrative of a story. It's very difficult to sort of tack yeah. on yeah, yeah. and combine, OK, this is terrible, but, you know, there are lots of solutions out there. From a journalistic point of view, Fiona, you may have been able to do it, but the research suggests that that's actually been... Not only the research suggests that's been very difficult, but if you look at it through the climate social psychology lens, it leaves people, as well as what you were suggesting, sort of down and out and not... Uh, very uh, engaged by uh, wanting to take action in various forms for uh, climate uh, policy. I do think that it's worth saying again, just from the research, and there's a huge amount of research out there, what actually gets the most engagement in terms of solutions is when uh, uh, journalists, written but particularly broadcast, show images of and interview people like you and me doing things about the situation that they're in. Mm. So it's very often local solutions or local initiatives which don't really fit easily with a national environment correspondent, but actually the evidence suggests mm. that's where you get engagement. And you can measure engagement by, does that mean you take part in campaigns? Does that mean that you lobby your MP? Does that mean that you uh, go on demonstrations? And again, the evidence from the research mm. is that 
if you do lots of local solutions with people like you, you are more likely to get engagement. But the challenge is it's very difficult to bring that into, st into other stories where you're talking about the impacts. They tend to be self-standalone. And just as an addendum, because our, the state of our local news reporting is so starved of money, that is a real problem. Mm, you know, really you cannot get decent local reporting about local impacts. It's very, mm. very difficult. So that's my topic. Uh, super briefly, um, I mean, I do write more bad news stories than good news stories. <laughs> um, I think, uh, I think what is clear, just purely anecdotal, from what I hear from readers and from editors and mates, is people want agency, not fatalism, right? So yeah. I think that's what the yeah. that's where this appetite is coming from. I think in terms of like to Fiona's point of how do you kind of put it in everything. It's about context, right? I think I wrote about a thousand words about heat pumps and why the UK sucks at them last. September and you know I think you can do that quite often by for example looking to international examples so you know if I spoke to people who were you know pointing out examples in the Nordics or even countries like the Netherlands which are quite similar to the UK and they used to have lots of gas and a quite a good case study and they're actually making progress and getting people to say okay here's how they've done it um, so you know it doesn't necessarily fix the problem here and now but it shows you that things mm -hmm. can be done things can be fixed um, I think there's something as well about the medium you tell the story on, so comes back to my thing about pegs, so, you know, I don't think the grammar of a news story usually works very well for solutions journalism, yeah. doesn't, you know what I mean, it doesn't usually write a great news pyramid top line of a story, whereas, like, that's why I found the email newsletter work really well, and I found podcasts work quite well for telling those mm -hmm. constructive stories. And, and I, I think my, my last comment would just be, like, oh, it's just sort of question the whole premise of your question, I guess, is we're not advocates. We're not, we're, yeah. you know, I might be an environmentalist in my personal life, but that's neither here nor there in terms of my reporting. Um, and, you know, yes, it is bad. A little part of me thinks just deal with it. And, like, enough of the, you know, happy, clappy, um, you know, other things are bad. Yeah. You know, well, we don't go, oh, where's those constructive stories about war? You know, it's just like, <laughs> I just, you know, what about all those, you know, people, sick people? I, I, I don't know, it's just... There's a little bit of me like, why are we treating this as a special category of journalism? So, a part of me think I, I, I think it's really important doing this stuff because you know I've got I've got a dog in this fight. I've got two young daughters, you know, teenagers, and one of them is basically decided become very fatalistic and decided we're going to hell in a handcart and nothing can be done. And that's clearly not the case. So, I do you know I do think we need to do something, but I do also wonder why we insist on this sort of like. Come on, tell the good story, you know. So uh, that's a really good, uh, I think, uh, question because uh, when I, say, I talk about climate solutions, I'm not actually talking about good news necessarily. It's more about how do we go about, what do we know about how to go about decarbonizing a society? Um, and it's not just, you know, the fancy new clean tech and, you know, the venture capital that went into some exciting new startup, but it's well, what policies um, actually make sense? Because a lot of the policies that are in the news are about targets, so they're about the ambition. Is it right to want to decarbonize to net zero by 2050 or by 2060 or whatever it is? But the, the actual governance of this is to craft policies and to craft actions on the ground where people will shift their behavior, will shift their investments uh, as a result of those um, of those policies, and it's about kind of creating a common understa a, a collective understanding of what those tools are. Basically, what are the tools we have, and what are the trade-offs, and you know, 
and we had um, uh, one question uh, some, uh, somebody asked me ahead of this event is, well, when there is a, bud a new budget, um, do we report on the consequences for, uh, for, for various problems, like including climate change, like uh, that you are changing the tax code uh, on you know, different modes of transport, that's going to change uh, the, the incentives people have. So those kinds of, um, so the peg here is not you know, uh, a good news, good feel good, Thing, but it's simply, well, what are the consequences of the decisions we take on this goal that we have decided is kind of important? Um, yeah, so I, I think that's kind of maybe, and so with that in mind, um, is there an, uh, anything you want to um, kind of work on in the years ahead, like do differently or, or put emphasis on uh, compared to uh, yeah, the past or how things are normally done. So you, you were talking about different medium, uh, the podcast and the uh, mailing list and so on. I was just kind of interested in um, yeah, your, your ideas and wishes for uh, how uh, journalism around decarbonizing might move forward. Well, I would like to, uh, to try to open up some sort of a debate about the IPCC. I know they just made some conclusions this past week. I'm not sure they're the right conclusions. Um, politici politicians, policymakers need, need information now. I know the IPCC feels overwhelmed, but I don't know if there's been much reporting on that. I certainly, I certainly haven't seen much. It's kind of behind the scenes technical. Maybe people are not interested in it. Uh, but that raises a question of, you know, what is the purpose of journalism? Are we supposed to tell people things that they're interested in, or are we also supposed to tell them stuff that they, we think they should know? And exactly. I think, I think our, our desire to be optimistic can cause distortions. So, for instance, you mentioned Hannah Ritchie. She's written a book called uh, Not the End of the World. She's a climate scientist, or a scientist uh, specialising in climate. And it's been picked up by a number of papers, particularly right-wing columnists, saying here's a former greenie, and now she says it's not the end of the world. Actually, that's just a book title dreamt up by a publisher, and if you listen to her earlier on, on uh, Start the Week, um, she said, so the, the review in the, uh, in the week, which I read, and I think looks normally really good, ends with, don't worry, it's not, it's not existential climate change, it's not existential and start the week, put that to her, Are you, do you agree climate change is not existential? And she said, yes, I agree, it isn't existential because humanity will still exist, but it, it is a crisis of catastrophes. Well, do we want a crisis of catastrophes? No, we don't, which is why people write it, the, the headline writers and the right-wing columnists write it in, in a way that disguises that, disguises that fact. And in, in terms of our own particular agency, our, our personal agency, the BBC has been under a lot of pressure from people who, who look at our web metrics of what people want to, to listen to and hear, and they're getting very clear message that people want stuff about agency and they want solutions. But the truth is, as individuals, we actually have very little agency. And I chaired a meeting with John Gummer at Glastonbury last, uh, last year, former environment minister, very good at former environment minister, and, he's, and he faced this group of... Um, of music, music-loving, greeny lefties, and uh, 50 people maybe in the tent. And he said, "Okay, how many of you have been to your MP to demand stronger action on climate change?" And not one put their hand up. And that's probably, in my view, probably the most single effective thing that you can do. 
if you're worried about climate change, is to go and knock on the door of your MP and say, I need more action on this. If everybody in the room did it, I mean, that would be, that would be a start. So I'm, I'm dubious about, I'm very wary of, of the potential dis distortions of, of agent, personal agency and, and positive news. Mm -hmm. Great. I don't know if, Fiona, uh, you wanted to... Um, so I see hands up. Let's hold off just for... Okay. <laughs> um, I just want to ask one more uh, question before, before we open up. Um, and, and, and it's about... You know, so again, it's not necessarily about good news, but about how we do this and, and making sure people have the information base to understand that. And you know, you've been talking a lot about you know deniers uh, versus people who are who support climate action. But you know, there's there's a large range of issues we could disagree on without being a denier. Um, and so the question is, you know, what areas in climate policy and climate action you find legitimate to sort of um, to dispute and discuss in the, mid, in the media without being labeled a denier. Um, you know, with, which, is it the cost of net zero? Is it how we include more people democratically in the decision process? Because it tends to be a very technocratic thing. You know, which areas uh, really deserve that kind of uh, debate um, and, and, and without falling into this binary denier or pro? I don't know if uh, maybe James. Yeah, wanna... well, just again briefly. If you if you look again, look at you know the, our initial research suggests that the big argument, the, make, the, the, the largest argument that editorials and opinion um, pieces use against taking action is cost, uh, and they leave out very often the cost of inaction, or they leave out the co-benefits. But if you look at the left-leaning media, and I'd love to know what you will think there isn't much debate about the cost, or maybe there isn't enough. And I think it is a very legitimate mm -hmm. discussion to have. If you walk the streets and ask people, you know, in Oxford, what is it that you're concerned about, about net zero? They picked up this idea that it's gonna cost uh, an awful lot of money. And giving people facts, I slightly disagree with you, Fenner, just to be dissonant, is you know, a lot of the climate psychology work suggests that giving people more information more <coughs> facts is helpful but very very often it doesn't persuade people who are in the sort of denialist camp or questioning camp it's about values it's about what your personal beliefs are about climate change it's about your identity politics and giving people facts doesn't normally work in terms of countering the issue of cost so we have to think really massive. I'm not sure about whether it's the role of the media, but certainly the role of all these NGOs who are working in that sector about how you implement effective policies. How do you um, uh, frame it and how you discuss it in a way that really buy, gets buy-in from the people that uh, you want to get buy-in from? Because let's face it, the, another big argument that the right are using are, uh, if this is an elite, this is a a green elite, middle class elite, imposing high cost decisions on poorer sectors. How are you going to combat that argument? I haven't seen it in the left-leaning press. So I think there are two, it, it sort of speaks to what are legitimate questions to debate within the press. I think there's two of them. And you've got to think really carefully about how you frame it for them. That's my tuppence. Fiona, would you have something to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, 
That, that, that's really important, uh, uh, James, all that you've said, and um, we, that's at the heart of, 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 of what we need to do next, is address this, this issue, these people who are, who are concerned about cost. But I think that where we need to, to start from on that um, is the, the opposite place from where this government has started, because if you listen to Rishi Sunak, uh, he says that, you know, I don't want to go for net zero because... Uh, you know, all the, the people, uh, you know, the, the, on lower incomes are the people who will bear the brunt, and, you know, that's why we, we, we can't go for net zero, or we can't go as fast. Um, and that's just a complete lie uh, for a, a, a Prime Minister to, to, to come up with that. It's just lying. Um, because it's the government that decides where the costs will fall. Quite simply, that's what governments do, and that's what governments are for. And so I think that, you know, we as journalists should be pointing that out. We should make that clear that these are choices. You know, who bears the cost of, of net zero? That's a choice. It's a choice that a government makes, and governments are the ones with agency here. And governments decide, uh, you know, whether it's, it's industry, or whether it's rich people, or whether it's uh, the people who pollute, or who it is, it's governments who decide that, who determine uh, where the costs lie and where the costs uh, are paid. And you know, but do you think that argument is being made saying. forcefully enough? Well, well. <laughs> no, it, I mean, look, it, 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 it has it, under my back. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely, it definitely isn't been powerfully enough made. And you see, you, I mean, Labour had their 28 billion that they would spend on you know, home refurbishment to bring people's bills down, public transport, all sorts of other good stuff, but are running, running scared of it. Um, I, you know, it would, have been, it would have been, I think, a risk to try to stick to the money and, uh, and, and tough it out and say, look, this is going to benefit everybody. This is how we'll spend the money, in broad brush terms. Uh, but they've chosen to, to run instead and just, you know, hide under the covers for a while. But that, I mean, I, I, I totally endorse what Fiona said. This is, this is up to the government to decide who pays. Mm -hmm. And the poor do not have to lose out from it. Indeed, if they get warmer homes with lower bills and better public transport, then they will benefit from it. And th th there is another problem, which is the short-term versus the long-term. And, you know, there, there are short-term costs, and we, you know, maybe we haven't discussed them enough. But it's, diffi it's difficult to get into that without being pulled into that, OK, well, okay but let's not do anything then, because we're only 2% or is it 1% of global yeah. emissions? Why not bother? So it, it's a tricky area yeah, for journalists and politicians. Uh, super briefly, because I feel like we need, I need to say something now, because you've all said something. <laughs> the, um, I think um, on the cost stuff, I think we do need to be sort of clear-eyed and honest in our reporting about the upfront cost of stuff. And a lot of the... It's just inherent in a lot of the technology. You know, renewables have big upfront costs, and, they don't, and then they have no fuel costs, right? It's, it's inherent in how you finance them. Um, you know, heat pumps more expensive than gas boilers for now. EVs the same for petrol and diesel. I think we just need to be clear about what the direction of travel is. Um, and I think it's also about narratives, right? Which whose narratives you pick. I think weirdly the um, weirdly one, one thing the Conservative Party's been very good at is about in recent years, at least until the, until the last few months. He's been talking about this in terms of jobs and economic opportunity and not even mentioning when it comes to things like offshore wind farms the fact that they are carbon free you know because like who cares in a way it's just you don't you know it, that's not necessarily the point of building these things um we need to get energy from somewhere as well as decarbonizing it um the i think on the and i think also on some of the solutions we do need to be honest you know 
I've driven electric cars, I like them, you know, we do need to be honest about the fact that the distribution of, the geographical distribution of charges is unequal. London has a lot of them, you know, far more than there are, you know, if you look at how car use in the rest of the country. Um, heat pumps are still really basic things that the government hasn't fixed, like, you know, the, the boundary wall, the fact that if you try and put one a metre, so I live in a townhouse and, like, that's like a nightmare, you know, it basically means if you live in a townhouse it's almost impossible to install one at the moment. We do need to be clear-eyed about the fact that although these, these might be the best looking options to decarbonise sectors, there are issues with them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're just going to go around, we're certainly going to have more and more of the who pays and how do you protect the vulnerable and how do you know, can have that in a lot of sectors, I think. Okay, so I think we can yeah, open to, uh, so I, I think there is a yeah, roving mic. Um, so let's start with a uh, gentleman here on the, on the left. <clears throat> My name is Tom. I'm a student at the university studying environmental law. Um, thank you very much for what you've all said. It's been extremely interesting. And I wanted to pick together a thread that's come out about solutions and personal agency. The, the solutions narrative in, in recent years seems to have focused very much on technology and policy solutions. Do you think that it's time that the media narrative started turning more attention towards the differences that individuals could make to emissions if everyone acted together. And by, by which I mean a slightly extreme example, admittedly, but rather than talking about whether we should be moving from a petrol car to an electric car, we should be telling people, you should stop having a car at all. Do you really need it? Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying this in a defensive way, but I've you know, written loads of stuff about the fact that the big thing we're onto now is behaviour change, and there's been load, covered lots of reports saying if we don't do the behaviour change stuff as well as the techno fixes, it's going to cost more. There's been a lot of you know analysis on that. I think you know, and there's really interesting work on the like using less energy stuff. There's a lot of interesting academic research on that, and a lot of interesting stuff on diet change. And though, I think we are going to have to get into the you know those. That is a public discourse we have to have, whether politicians want to have it or not. I think again, it's like how do you get into it as a journalist because. Politicians don't want to go there, right? Even the, the Labour Party don't want to go there, right? They're paying safe, safe. So it's kind of who do you go to in terms of campaigners, academics, or others to report what people are saying? So, have so that. Who is going to go there? That's, that's, that's kind of what I mean. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like it's not my job, but like you know, I, I mean, I look at and try and get a handle of what's going on in the world, and I don't feel like it's me to set the agenda. I know that sounds like a cop out, but. Sort of how I see my job. I also think it's very difficult when the right wing media are so incredibly hawkish on anything that might look like uh, an offence to personal freedom. So you can't drive as much, you can't fly as much. But if you, if you went back, it hasn't always been like this. And, you know, if you went back just a couple of years, government published a white paper on transport. They published it at about three or four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, which means they didn't want anyone to read it. And uh, in the foreword from Grant Sheps, he said, we've got to get people out of our cars and onto public transport. And just uh, quelling emissions itself is, is not enough. We need to tackle traffic in cities, the danger of traffic in cities and congestion and uh, damage to the economy. Uh, and then you saw Rishi Sunak, like four months ago, saying, oh, you know, I'm the, I'm the prime minister for the motorist. So, it's, you know, it's a very, very tough agenda to, uh, mm -hmm. to work on. Sorry, just very briefly, I, I think you, there is something I would I agree with all that, but again, we did some research looking at how much do the media focus on um, 
energy uh, uh, emissions compared to emissions from food systems, uh, and apropos of diet. And certainly five years ago, there was hardly any coverage except in The Guardian, to be, to be fair. And the latest study, there is a shift, there is more uh, coming out about food systems and the role that food systems um, play in emissions. But I think there's probably a little bit more that can be done. I mean, Roger, I think you've spoken about this in the past, um, whether there's, there's actually the NFU in this country have got quite an effective counter-narrative um, that comes out. They, they put huge pressure on, I think I'm right, when, he, when I was at the BBC, they put pressure on correspondents not to, uh, you know, or, or they didn't like lots of coverage about changing your diet and, and didn't... Um, it got very little coverage uh, in the BBC. So I think my key point is it is changing, but there are big forces. And I think, Fiona, you were there at the COP. My understanding was you know, the, the presence of big ag uh, as lobbyists was very, very notable. And they virtually succeeded, didn't they, in sort of getting it off uh, the agenda. There was a token statement, but there wasn't much bite. So there are big obstacles there, but it is changing slowly. I have a very brief, very brief confession to make publicly that uh, about 25 years ago I realised how serious agriculture was in terms of the climate narrative, uh, but I was getting such stick from right-wingers about my coverage of aviation and cars and homes and stuff that I thought if I, if I tell people that actually they've got to cut down the meat they eat as well, then I am going to fall off the edge of what is acceptable. <laughs> So I kept my mouth shut, and I don't know whether that was the right thing or not. Would you do it now, Richard? I would do it all the time now, yeah, but, you know, then I was very much a lone voice. And, uh, all right, let's try to I'll take three questions from the audience, and then afterwards we'll do a round with the online. So uh, we have a, a question here, and uh, here in the front, and then there in the middle of the fourth row. Hello, thank you very much. I'm Peter. I'm so refreshed to hear the lie called out by Fiona and Roger quoting the junk tanks. I haven't heard a great deal from the Times representative yet, but there is a villain in the story, and the public loves a villain. The BBC has a duty to inform, and misinformation needs to be exposed. The greatest obstacle to the transition is the villain, the, the misinformer, the lobbyist who uses COP. Can you, can you so the question, the question is, you are yeah, so yeah, building sorry. on your question, where are you going in the future? Are you prepared to expose the villain, whether it's the lobbyist, the president of the UAE using that platform to sell oil, whether it's Exxon taking the governments captive with their lobbies. We need whistleblowers. We need to expose. We need to ex uh, attack that right-wing press. We need to, it's not a correction later on in the page. They need to be properly branded and exposed for their lies because they are a major enemy of public interest. Okay, I are think, I think we got your point. Let's take the two other questions and then you can answer to whichever you want. Thanks very much, and it's an exciting panel. My name is Stanislav, I run uh, Environment Europe Foundation and I work for the UN as well. Uh, how much coverage there has been in your work and the work that you faced 
of very difficult sort of policy-related issues. I'll give you an example. Ten years ago, I subscribed to 100% renewable electricity tariff uh, in the hope that uh, as fossil fuels get taxed with carbon tax, renewables will be cheaper. And it's never happened because we have this thing in the trading of the electricity, which means that it's priced by the marginal unit. So if the country buys very expensive coal or gas from overseas, this is how much everybody pays, including electricity from 100% allegedly renewable companies. I feel that this is you know, a bit of a puzzle. Uh, I could go on and on, but I'll stop here. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of the fourth row there, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'm Lee Bailey. I work at the Natural Resource Governance Institute. Um, the first questioner said something about COP and was referring to um, Sultan al-Jaber, who is the president of the COP process, who's also the head of the national oil company in the UAE. The Guardian did a lot of coverage, almost daily, I think, on going into that on the potential conflict of interest and the problems there. So they certainly have taken up your challenge. But looking back at that coverage and the outcome of COP, uh, and I guess this is for, for Fiona, but everyone, what was the upshot of that? That storyline basically is, is a question. Also, super quickly, The Guardian is very unique in that it's an in-depth reporting organization that's free to access for everyone. And so my question is, when you think about audiences beyond the UK and the countries where my organization works, lower income, resource-rich countries, do you think of them as audiences? Do you, how do you uh, account for their experiences in your coverage? And is that important? And basically, who is your audience uh, these days? Thank you. Great, so. Shall I start? Yeah. Uh, so, to start, jump over there. Um, I mean, I was at The Guardian for 10 years. I've wrote, I wrote my fair share of misinformation stories. I've, you know, worked with people like, at the time as I've worked with people like Dismog Blog and exposing stuff about lobbying going on by biking groups against ULES. So, I was one of the first journalists to do stuff about the way that Twitter's turned into an open sewer under Musk. Um, so, yeah, I very much am interested in it. Um, I've written a story, I don't know if it will run today, about um, uh, Chris Stark, the head of the Climate Committee, accusing the, um, the Sunday Telegraph of misinformation, and I've done various reporting around that today. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not afraid of doing that. I do think it's a good subject. Um, in terms of the green energy question, I used to be an energy correspondent, so, I mean, I'm sort of quite geekily obsessed with this. I mean, I think... Uh, I think there's a real problem with Rigos, the certificates that are used, you know, that most people use to say that they're doing green energy. Um, Ovo, one of the big suppliers recently said it doesn't want to do those. I mean, look, I think ultimately most of them have all switched to renewable supply of one way or another through different methods. Some of them have their own actual generation, some of them use these certificates. Um, I think there's been a debate and we've, it's been covered not in business pages about detaching the whole, you know, the wholesale price being linked to gas is an issue. There's a debate being had about <coughs> switching it to renewables. I think um, the price of wind, you know, clearly that's going to have to change because it's what it comes back to the solutions point, right? At the moment, no one really feels the benefit of the fact that renewables are cheaper. You don't see that in your bill. So there is going to have to be a change there, but I don't really have a solution. Um, don't think your, I think your question, I mean, for, for my only comment on your question was just, from my, my point of view, it wrote great copy because it was like a, a narrative that a person in the pub who's got no interest in environment stories could understand oil boss hosting a climate summit. 
Anybody else wants to yeah, react? I'll happily to. So the question one, um, do we challenge the, the, the destroyers or the wreckers or whatever you might call them? Um, I've put in a paper to the BBC a long time ago saying we should insist that anybody, any think tank coming, uh, coming onto the BBC, before they came on they had to declare their funders. Uh, and eventually that paper was taken up internally and it is supposed to be a BBC policy. It doesn't happen. Um, there are constantly people on who are involved in Tufton Street in some way with some shadowy funding. In my, in my universe, everybody in the country would know the words Tufton and Street. Now, they know Street, but they don't know Tufton, and I'd like them, I'd like them to know both. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just, just go away, Google it. I didn't really understand the second point, but the, the third person about the cop storyline, I mean, I think that is actually extremely interesting and, and very tricky, and all countries have different perspectives on this and you are if you are in a low income resource rich country then you are going to be thinking well look at the UK they chopped down all their trees to fight the Spanish and then they dug up all their coal and started this climate problem and then they used almost all their oil and gas and now they're wanting to drill for even more just to suck out the last few drops oh and they don't want us to sell ours and I think personally that is a pretty difficult moral case to argue, uh, and uh, I don't know personally where to take it. I think it is really deeply, deeply intractable. Mm -hmm. So we'll take uh, three questions from our online audience. So we've got lots of questions uh, here. So I'll read one from uh, someone that did not um, uh, identified himself. So uh, the question is, do you think uh, um, there are adequate conversations happening around the cost of inaction? Uh, they say uh, we often hear about the cost of transition, but there seems to be a gap around the cost of not transitioning. Uh, that's the first question. The second one is from Alina. Uh, Alina Verchenkova. So uh, she asks, uh, how can uh, the research community help journalists in covering and communicating on climate policy, given the current uh, challenges that the panel has uh, raised? And the third one from uh, Bernard Bedford, he's a um, retired GP from the New Forest. Uh, and Bernard asks, uh, can the, the panel uh, recommend a book or and or a podcast that best sums up the uh, climate crisis and possible solutions that would uh, best educate the public? Okay. Um, we, so, uh, I, I could take yeah. very briefly the first one, the cost of inaction. Again, if you, you know, pour over, as we do, the, the media coverage in the right-leaning uh, press in 2023, um, there was very, very little mention of the cost of inaction. It was always all about the cost of net zero. In the left-leaning press, there was a lot about the cost of inaction. So it really speaks to this problem of how in the UK do we try and break through this sort of polarization in the media around such sharply differing um, approaches to uh, net zero. And I would, we could probably have a whole debate about that. But in answer to the question, left-leaning media, lots in the Guardian, lots in the Mirror, lots in the Independent, Telegraph, Sun, um, Express, Mail, masses on the cost of reaching net zero, very little on the cost in action. 
I'm sorry, Adam, I, I can't remember what the time is. That's very convenient. You're That's in the middle. <laughs> but it's a very good question. And it's something, how do we address it? Discuss it. Okay, so we have the question on the, how can the research community uh, help, so the exact wording of Alina, help uh, journalists um, understand climate policies, right? Yeah. About climate policies. Well, you could, you could crowdsource funding to buy the Daily Telegraph. That would be a really <laughs> good start. Um, I mean, my really short, slightly glib answer is I find it really useful when researchers are on social media and they put things in, di you know, digestible, piffy ways on there. Um, uh, I find the conversation, that website, quite useful as a sort of halfway house between, you know, stuff that's published in journals and what we do um, when I'm, at, you know, at a rush. Those are two answers. And on the books question... Uh, I've not read it yet, but Hannah's book, I imagine, will be very good, having worked with her a lot in the past. Um, and it's not on solutions, but the one great environment book you should read from the last year is the um, John Valiant one, the one about the um, fires, the big fire in, um, in Canada the other year in the, in the oil town. It's fantastic. I've forgotten the name of it. Can anyone remember it? Uh, it's, look up John Valiant. Yeah, it's brilliant. Great. I mean, just to reiterate the point about the conversation, for those of you who don't know it, it's designed to help researchers write in a journalistic style. And there's lots of evidence that when you do get a piece as a researcher, uh, you have to have a doctorate, though, by the way. You have to have a, a, a doctoral thesis. You do get a lot of media interest. And it's certainly my experience. If you put mm -hmm. something out in the conversation, you'll get at least three or four media inquiries. So I think just to reinforce what yeah, I don't know if you guys use it, but it's the classic way. And they, they're great. They help researchers, even young researchers, to write in a way that's attractive to uh, journalists and a wider audience, and they're doing incredibly well. So it's, not, it's, not, it's not that we're lazy, it's just that we don't have a lot of time, and so yeah. quite often, you know, if you're trying to find someone, an expert on a subject, you know, I'll plug words into Google Scholar and try and find, okay, this is the person who's the go-to person on this element of Arctic sea ice, but, you know, quite often it's much <laughs> easier to find it, find them via there, and you're like, oh, they've also got an ear for a nice turn of phrase, I think they're probably the one to phone yeah. up, you know. Great. Um, yeah, Robert. Um, Robert Falken from the LSE, International Relations. Question about where uh, climate reporting is positioned within the media. I mean, I think most of the newspapers and, and television journals now do fairly extensive coverage of, of climate. And it's still mostly done by environmental correspondents. Yeah. I'm not going to try and talk you out of your job. But I wonder whether the point has come whether we should, where we should try and get climate change to be covered where it ought to be covered, which is because it's a global economic transition away from uh, industrial systems and lifestyles and politics, uh, as we've done it before, where economics correspondents, business correspondents, mm -hmm. need to report on the net zero transition in business as a matter of fact, rather than whenever you get them to, to do it in the corridors of your organizations. I wonder whether that could shift the debate somewhat. Yeah, I've got struck quite strong feelings on that and that it should, um, people like Wolfgang Blau talk a lot about how it should be in the sort of DNA of newsrooms and you should have, you know, joint byline stuff, which to be fair, The Guardian does very well, of like, you know, teaming up environment experts with people on beats. Um, I think, you know, I used to be, I think it's one of those things that's good as a sort of guiding, to use the Al Jabba phrase, the COP28 um, uh, North Star. It's a good North Star to have as a principle. 
doing it in reality and practice in the newsroom on a daily basis is less easy. When I spent you know two or three years doing the energy correspondent gig on the business desk at the Guardian, and you know I'd be writing a quarter. You, you know you've got like I don't know BP's quarterly results from Q2, and like they've said this at the other, and like it's quite a handbrake turn to impar forego. And studies have shown BP is responsible for X percent of emissions. You can do it, and you can give prominence to who you pick in terms of comment. You know, go to you know the investors, you know Hermes or something. You know, an investor that's got a sort of social conscience. Um, but it's yeah, it's sort of easy. It's in the same like you know people go, oh, we should have it in all the sports get. You know, it's changing cricket and it's been. Uh, it's sort of harder to do in practice, I think. But I think I guess I feel like our job as environment people is to sort of be at least spreading that knowledge or awareness in newsrooms is a little thing we can do. Any other experience with cross-disciplinary... Yeah, I, tried, I tried for many, many years to get the BBC to report climate in an interdisciplinary way. I think now I was probably misguided. Um, you know, the, the economics people deal with economics, they see economics, the environment is just kind of on the edge and if they're, you know, they have to tick the box... Um, there's no such thing as a joint byline in radio or television. More's the pity because I think joint byline stories work quite well, but you can't do that in, in radio or, or television. And I think, you know, who is going to report the environment best? Well, probably the people who specialise it and know most. And I think it's just as incumbent on us to get literal with the economics and the business side of things as it is the other way around. <coughs> and there is a, a problem that what it, once you start saying to people, okay, well, it's everybody's job to report the environment, then you have blood on the carpet every time there's a big story, and that's not helpful. Okay. Yes, I think that will be our last question uh, before we, we wrap up. Thank you. Oh, well, maybe we can manage to take both, so... You mentioned Wolfgang Blau. Can't, can't hear you. Bring the mic. You mentioned Wolfgang Blau, who um, uh, the, uh, he, he was the co-founder of the Oxford School of Journalism, and he's gone through a long process of looking at the newsroom and <coughs> trainings and so on, in order to make this possible. And I noticed that at Cannes he gave quite a small talk, and it was about the spiritual questions. Now. Roger is saying we're 30 years too late. Increasingly, I'm in spaces where there's incredible cognitive dissonance about what's being said and the actual facts of what's being said. I'm thinking of the Met Office looking at food and farming last week. And, uh, and so my question is, is, is there another kind of a conversation that we have to broach with the public in order to get a purchase, which is beyond facts and you know, talking about what does it mean to have a job today? I mean, what kind of a job should people even be considering as being a valid job, for example? Yes, my name is Stefano Bonfa, and my question is simple. You're looking for a solution for climate policy. Now, the question is, uh, before having decarbonization, you need digitalization. Digitalization means you need to have some kind of, let's say, observatory, locally or nationally or internationally. This does not exist. So the question is, why we don't think to have an observatory for climate teaching politicians to make decisions? That is the question. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm not quite sure I understood completely the question um, about the need for conversations, but it does strike me that I was listening to the Green Alliance did a wonderful webinar on Tuesday, which you can go to online, about how you approach different sectors, particularly low-income sectors, with conversations about getting buy-in for some of these policies that um, uh, we've been talking about, net zero, because the right are using them as sort of fair-weather friends. And I really recommend it. Google it, Green, Green Alliance. Um, and they had three representatives of NGOs who were working with poor sectors, low-income sectors, about what had worked in, in terms of effective engagement. And my three key takeaways, which I think speaks to what you were saying, is one, don't, what um, Roger was saying, don't use language that mostly comes out of the policy world. Use language, very simple language, or not simple, but you know, what do you eat? How do you want to eat? How do you want to travel? How do you want to live your life? How do you want to have fun? First thing. Second, messengers. The media are not great messengers for, if you're thinking about effective communication at a local community level. Um, messengers have to be people like the people you're trying to reach. And the third thing um, that uh, really uh, uh, struck me is that for a lot of those sectors, they feel like they're the guilty ones. They're the people who aren't making the sacrifices that we all want them to make. And how do you super, um, overcome that? My point being that I think the key thing from the literature is if you're thinking about effective communication with different sectors, and it's not necessarily the role of the media this, it's NGOs, you really have to have audience segmentation. You really have to think about the language. You really have to think about the framing. Uh, and then you're much likely to get, much more likely to get um, effective outcomes. So please go and listen, watch that webinar. I, I'm not sure that answered your question, but it was just <laughs> something I was... There's a lot of literature out there on the effects of communication around climate, you know, independently of the media. Did it answer your question? Probably not. Um, I suppose I'm talking about when we actually are, you know, we're very far along in terms of with the 10 degree rise. Yeah, so in addition to, uh, to the coverage on how do we go about decarbonizing, there's also the question of how do we go about adapting to a changing climate. Um, yeah, and... We'll have to, to pick up on that topic another time, uh, unfortunately. So thank you very much uh, for, for coming tonight. And uh, thank you very much for sharing your experiences. Uh, it was really, really helpful for me, at least. <laughs> Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.